What I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to do something that I've never done before. And, and that is I'm going to preach another man's sermon. I'm going to preach a sermon by Charles Spurgeon, a sermon called Compel Them to Come In. Now, why in the world would I do that? I'll just say I have a few remarks before I jump into preaching. The reason that I would do that is because God has gifted others in generations past, not just uh, folks here and your pastors uniquely for you, which he has done. Providentially, God gives his pastors to his people at certain times to suit them specifically for the members of the church that he gives to them. But he's also gifted men throughout the history of the church and some exceedingly and more abundantly than those who are alive today. And Spurgeon was perhaps the most gifted preacher outside of the apostolic era. And he's providentially, in his kindness, preserved their labors for us. It's one thing, there are probably many men who were gifted as much as Spurgeon, if not more, whose, whose name's history does not know. But in, in God's providence, he's preserved the works of Spurgeon in large part. And this particular sermon is really uh, something that is uh, wonderful to, to read, but also to hear. Uh, on that, I could just come up here and say, hey, you should go home and when you get a minute, read Compel Them to Come In by Charles Spurgeon. And, you know, maybe three or four of you would do it. Then even those who would do it, you'd read it, but you'd read it. And, and as for a sermon is meant to be heard. It's meant to be preached. And so I thought maybe I can give voice to that. And I understand that it's a bit unseemly to preach another man's sermon. Every once in a great while, it's okay. Certainly, we don't want to make a practice out of this. And, and certainly, we always do it with attribution. There, there's no greater imposter and, and deceiver than a man who preaches another man's sermon. And so, we, we do it all without, without saying that it's another man's, right? As if uh, I, I come to you saying, I'm the one who did this, and it's really the labor of someone else. But uh, because of that, I would in, in, entreat you a favor for me. If somebody comes in late this morning, uh, please, and sits next to you, nudge them and say, hey, this is a Spurgeon by Charles Sermon. Spurgeon, sorry, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon. Um, Mike's not actually, you know, quoting the King James and, and uh, being all Spurgeon-y. And, and I think really the heart of the reason that I wanted to do this is that it, you guys need to hear good evangelistic preaching. And I aim to be evangelistic in my preaching, but, but we need to have sermons that are directed at the congregation, but particularly the unbelievers among the congregation, because we need to, to reap where God has, has sown, uh, and we need, we need to call those who have not yet been saved to faith. Some of you need to be saved. Some of you in this room maybe may have been here for decades and uh, are deceived about your own condition. Some of you aren't deceived, but you, you come because you know you should be here, but you know you don't know Christ. Some of you need to be saved, and I, and I hope that this sermon does that. I hope that it accomplishes your salvation. Others of you need to treasure the gospel more. Others of you need to treasure the gospel by which you have been saved more than you do. And you need to remember what it was like to be one with, that, with, with no hope, with su such a, a despair before the, the living God and, and be reminded of the, the sweet grace of Christ uh, as he saves you. And, and some of you need to hear, probably all of us need to hear good evangelism modeled because none of us evangelizes the way we should or as much as we should. And we need to hear what good gospel preaching sounds like so that we can go ahead and turn around and, and do that kind of evangelism with others. And I, I know that there's one concern, certainly that's great on my heart as I do this, and, and that is, you know, Mike, are you acting? I mean, how can you read with feeling? 
uh, a sermon that you didn't write. And, and I'm sensitive to that. And, and I can say two things to that. One is that the words, though they're not mine, spring from the same fount that Spurgeon's words sprang from, which is a, a, an earnest desire to see sinners saved, to see Christ have the prize for which he died, uh, to see him have the, the treasure which his father has promised him. And, and though Spurgeon can do it better than I can, uh, the, the desire and, and the, the earnest heart that this comes from is the same by, by God's help, I hope. And uh, I've endeavored to pray this sermon into my soul. Like I said, though I, I didn't write the words, I, I do feel them to be my own. Maybe not at the start, but you know, in, in the preparation for it, I've prayed for the heart to, 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 to speak these as my words. There are even parts where Spurgeon will say things in the first person, personal testimony or, or illustration. And uh, to the extent that I'm able, I, I've aimed to pray those realities uh, into my soul as well. So I, 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 before the Lord, I, I do my best to, to not act or pretend uh, this morning. Let me give you some background to the sermon. It was preached on December 5th, 1858, when Spurgeon was just 24 years old. I mean, you guys call me young and say that I look young. I'm 34 years old. Spurgeon was 24, a decade sooner when he preached this. And it was four years into his pastorate at the New Park Street Chapel in London, which is where his church was located before they went to the Metropolitan Tabernacle just uh, two years and change after this sermon was preached. He's actually preaching this at the Royal Surrey Gardens because they outgrew the New Park Street Chapel and the music hall seated 12,000 people. And Spurgeon preached this to, to 12,000 people without amplification. Now, for reference, our worship center seats about 2,700, that worship center, not this one. This one seats about 1,000 if we all got really close to each other. Spurgeon preached this to 12,000 people. There was no real occasion for it except that he had got, gotten a hold of this text in Luke 14 and it gripped his heart and he felt that he needed to preach it. He just needed to, to get about his business and you'll see it even in the sermon. He says, I, I don't have an introduction. I'm just going to go and get into it because he feels so earnestly the need to compel sinners to come in to Christ. Now, I, I've adapted some language to suit uh, a contemporary audience, um, but I, I also, uh, you also need to realize that you need to adapt your mind this morning to hear a little bit more of an older style, more beautiful English. Um, it takes more work, but it's worth it. I, I did decide to, to leave the scripture quotations in the King James because that's what Spurgeon was preaching. So it won't be my usual New American Standard or Phil's ESV. But I did aim to take out some of the, uh, the THs, the lisps, um, in, in the old King James language. Some of them, not all of them. So those of you who like that will, uh, will appreciate that. And just to orient you to the sermon so you kind of have an idea of, of where we're going, there's two main points in this sermon. Spurgeon says point one is he's going to find you out, and point two is he's going to compel you to come in. And under the, the first point, finding you out, he goes through four subpoints, four classes of people that he's aiming to find out. The poor, the maimed, the halt, which is the King James term for the crippled, and the blind. And then under compel you to come in, there's seven subpoints. And it's all different ways that Spurgeon is aiming to compel you to come to Christ. First, he tells you. Then he commands. Then he exhorts. Then he entreats. Then he threatens. 
then he weeps and prays, and then he appeals to the Spirit. So two main points, four subpoints under the first, seven under the second. And with that, let's read our text. I'm going to read Luke 14, verses 16 to 24. This is Jesus speaking. But he said to him, a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in, so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. And from here on, it'll be Charles Spurgeon. I feel in such a haste to go out and obey this commandment this morning by compelling those to come in who are now tarrying in the highways and hedges that I cannot wait for an introduction, but must at once set about my business. Hear then, O you that are strangers to the truth as it is in Jesus, hear then the message that I have to bring to you. You have fallen, fallen in your father Adam. You have also fallen in yourselves by your daily sin and your constant iniquity. You have provoked the anger of the Most High, and as, as, as assuredly as you have sinned, so certainly must God punish you if you persevere in your iniquity. For the Lord is a God of justice and will by no means spare the guilty. But have you not heard? Has it not long been spoken in your ears that God in his infinite mercy has devised a way whereby without any infringement upon his honor, he can have mercy upon you? the guilty and the undeserving. To you I speak, and my voice is unto you, O sons of men. Jesus Christ, very God of very God, hath descended from heaven and was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. Begotten of the Holy Ghost, he was born of the Virgin Mary and lived his life in this world, a life of exemplary holiness and of the deepest suffering till at last he gave up himself to die for our sins, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. And now the plan of salvation is simply declared unto you. Whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. For you who have violated all the precepts of God and have disdained his mercy and dared his vengeance, there is yet mercy proclaimed. For whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. 
Whosoever comes unto him, he will in no wise cast out. For he is able also to save unto the uttermost them that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for us. Now all that God asks of you, and this he gives you, is that you will simply look at his bleeding, dying son and trust your souls in the hands of him whose name alone can save from death and from hell. Is it not a marvelous thing that the proclamation of this gospel does not receive the unanimous consent of men? One would think that as soon as ever this was preached, that whosoever believes shall have eternal life. Every one of you casting away every man his sins and iniquities would lay hold on Jesus Christ and look to him, look alone to his cross. But alas, such is the desperate evil of our nature, such the, the pernicious depravity of our character that this message is despised. The invitation to the gospel feast is rejected. And there are many of you who are this day enemies of God by wicked works, enemies to the God who preaches Christ to you today, enemies to him who sent his son to give his life as a ransom for many. Strange, I say it is that it should be so, yet nevertheless it is the fact and hence the necessity for the command of the text, compel them to come in. Children of God, you who have believed, I shall have little or nothing to say to you this morning. I am going straight to my business. I'm going after those that will not come, those that are in the byways and hedges. And God going with me, it is now my duty to fulfill this command, compel them to come in. First, I must find you out. Secondly, I will go to work to compel you to come in. Well, first, I must find you out. If you read the verses that precede the text, you will find an amplification of this command. It says, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor, the maimed, the halt, or as he said before, the crippled, and the blind. And then afterwards, go out into the highways, bring in the vagrants, the highwaymen, and into the hedges, bring in those that have no resting place for their heads and are lying under the hedges to rest. Bring them in also and compel them to come in. Yes, I see you this morning. The poor, you that are poor, I am to compel you to come in. You are poor in circumstances, but that is no barrier to the kingdom of heaven. For God has not exempted from his grace men that shiver in rags and who are destitute of bread. In fact, if there be any distinction made, the distinction is on your side and for your benefit. Unto you is the word of salvation sent, for the poor have the gospel preached to them. But especially I must speak to you who are poor spiritually. You have no faith, no virtue. You have no good work. You have no grace. And what is poverty worse still, you have no hope. Ah, my master has sent you a gracious invitation. Come and welcome to the marriage feast of his love. Whosoever will, let him come and take of the waters of life freely. Come, I must lay hold upon you. Though you be defiled with foulest filth, and though you have nothing but rags on your back, 
Though your own righteousness has become as filthy rags, yet I must lay hold upon you and invite you and even compel you to come in. And now I see you again. You're not only poor, but you're maimed. There was a time when you thought you could work out your own salvation without God's help, when you could perform good works and attend to ceremonies and get to heaven by yourselves. But now you are maimed. The sword of the law has cut off your hands, and now you can work no longer. You say with bitter sorrow, the best performance of my hands dares not appear before thy throne. You have lost all power now to obey the law. You feel that when you would do good, evil is present with you. You are maimed. You have given up as a forlorn hope all attempt to save yourself because you are maimed and your arms are gone. But you're worse off than that. For if you could not work your way to heaven, yet you could walk your way there along the road by faith. But you are maimed in the feet as well as the hands. You feel that you cannot believe, that you cannot repent, that you cannot obey the stipulations of the gospel. You feel that you are utterly undone, powerless in every respect to do anything that can be pleasing to God. In fact, you're crying out in the words of the hymn, Oh, could I but believe, then all would easy be. I would but cannot, Lord, relieve, my help must come from thee. To you I am sent also. Before you I am to lift up the blood-stained banner of the cross. To you I am to preach this gospel, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Unto you I am to cry, whosoever will, let him come and take the water of life freely. There is yet another class. You are halt. You are halting between two opinions. You are sometimes seriously inclined, and at another, another time worldly amusements have called you away. What little progress you do make in religion is but a limp. You have a little strength. But that is so little that you make but painful progress. Ah, limping brother, to you also the word of this salvation is sent. Though you halt between two opinions, the master sends me to you with this message. 1 Kings 18, 21. How long halt ye between two opinions? If God be God, serve him. If Baal be God, serve him. Consider your ways. 2 Kings 20, verse 2. Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Amos 4, 12. Because I will do this, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Halt no longer, but decide for God and his truth. And yet I see another class, the blind. Yes, you that cannot see yourselves that think yourselves good when you're full of evil, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, darkness for light and light for darkness, to you I am sent. You blind souls that cannot see your lost estate, that do not believe that sin is so exceedingly sinful as it is, and who will not be persuaded to think that God is a just and righteous God, to you I am sent. To you, too, that cannot see the Savior, that see no beauty in him, that you should desire him, who see no excellence in virtue, 
No glories in religion, no happiness in serving God, no delight in being his children. To you also I am sent. I, to whom am I not sent if I take my text? For it goes further than this. It not only gives a particular description so that each individual case may be met, but afterwards it makes a general sweep and says, go into the highways and hedges. Here we bring in all ranks and conditions of men. My Lord upon his horse in the highway and the woman trudging about her business and the thief waylaying the traveler, all these are in the highway and they are all compelled to come in. And there away in the hedges, there lie some poor souls whose refuges of lies are swept away and who are seeking not to find some little shelter for their weary heads. To you also are we sent this morning. This is the universal command, compel them to come in. Now I pause after having described the character, I pause to look at the Herculean labor that lies before me. Well did Melanchthon say, old Adam was too strong for young Melanchthon. As well might a little child seek to compel a Samson. I seek to lead a sinner to the cross of Christ. And yet my master sends me about the errand. Behold, I see the great mountain before me of human depravity and of stolid indifference. But by faith I cry, as in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 7, Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. Does my master say, compel them to come in? Then though the sinner be like Samson and I a child, I shall lead him with a thread. If God says, do it, if I attempt it in faith, it shall be done. And if with a groaning, struggling, and weeping heart, I so seek this day to compel sinners to come to Christ, the sweet compulsions of the Holy Spirit shall go with every word, and some indeed shall be compelled to come in. And now to the work, directly to the work unconverted, unreconciled, unregenerate men and women, I am to compel you to come in. Permit me, at, uh, first of all, to accost you in the highways of sin and tell you over again my errand. The King of heaven this morning sends a gracious invitation to you. He says, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of him that dies, but had rather that he should turn unto me and live. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as wool. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be whiter than snow. Dear brother, it makes, me, it makes my heart rejoice that I should think that I have such good news to tell you. And yet I confess my soul is heavy because I see you do not think it is good news, but turn away from it and do not give it due regard. Permit me to tell you what the king has done for you. He knew your guilt. He foresaw that you would ruin yourself. He knew that his justice would demand your blood. And in order that this difficulty might be escaped, that his justice might have its full due, and that yet you might be saved, Jesus Christ has died. Will you just for a moment glance at this picture? You see that man there on his knees in the garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood. 
You see this next. You see that miserable sufferer tied to a pillar and lashed with terrible scourges till the shoulder bones are seen like white islands in the midst of a sea of blood. And again, you see this third picture. It is the same man hanging on the cross with hands extended and feet nailed fast, dying, groaning, bleeding. I thought the, the picture spoke and said, it is finished. Now all this has Jesus Christ of Nazareth done in order that God might consistently with his justice pardon sin. And the message to you this morning is this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That is, trust him, renounce your works and your ways and set your heart alone on this man who gave himself for sinners. Well, brother, I have told you the message. What do you say to it? Do you turn away? You tell me it is nothing to you? You cannot listen to it that, that you'll hear me another time, but you'll go your way this day and attend to your farm and your merchandise? Stop, brother. I was not told merely to tell you and then go about my business. No, I am told to compel you to come in. And permit me to observe to you before I further go that there is one thing I can say and to which God is my witness this morning that I am in earnest with you in my desire that you should comply with this command of God. You may despise your own salvation, but I do not despise it. You may go away and forget what you shall hear, but please remember the things that I now say cost me many a groan before I came here to utter them. My inmost soul is speaking out to you, my poor brother, when I beseech you by him that liveth and was dead and is alive forevermore, consider my master's message, which he now bids me to address to you. But do you spurn it? Do you still refuse it? Then I must change my tone a minute. I will not merely tell you the message and invite you as I do with all earnestness and sincere affection. I will go further. Sinner, in God's name, I command you to repent and believe. Do you ask me where my authority comes from? I am an ambassador of heaven. My credentials, some of them are secret and in my own heart, and others of them are open before you this day in the seals of my ministry, standing and sitting in this hall where God has given me many souls for my hire. As God, the everlasting one, has given me a commission to preach his gospel, I command you to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not on my own authority, but on the authority of him who said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And then annexed this solemn sanction, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believes not shall be damned. Reject my message and remember he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. How much sore punishment do you suppose shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God? An ambassador is not to stand below the man with whom he deals, but we stand higher. 
If the minister chooses to take his proper rank, girded with the omnipotence of God and anointed with his holy unction, he is to command men to speak with all authority, compelling them to come in. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.2, command, exhort, rebuke with all long-suffering. But do you turn away and say you will not be commanded? Then again, I will change my note. If that avails not, all other means shall be tried. My brother, I come to you simple of speech, and I exhort you to flee to Christ. Oh, my brother, do you know what a loving Christ he is? Let me tell you from my own soul what I know of him. I too once despised him. He knocked at the door of my heart, and I refused to open it. He came to me times without number, morning by morning and night by night. He checked me in my conscience and spoke to me by his spirit. And when at last the thunders of the law prevailed in my conscience, I thought Christ was cruel and unkind. Oh, I can never forgive myself that I should have thought so ill of him. But what a loving reception did I have when I went to him. I thought he would smite me, but his hand was not clenched in anger, but opened wide in mercy. I thought full sure that his eyes would dart lightning flashes of wrath upon me, but instead they were full of tears. He fell upon my neck and kissed me. He took off my rags and did clothe me with his righteousness and caused my soul to sing aloud for joy. In the house of my heart and in the house of his church, there was music and dancing because his son that he had lost was found. And he that was dead was made alive. I exhort you then, look to Jesus Christ and be lightened. Sinner, you will never regret. I will be bondsman for my master that you will never regret it. You shall have no side to go back to your state of condemnation. You shall go out of Egypt and shall go into the promised land and shall find it flowing with milk and honey. The trials of the Christian life you shall find heavy, but you will find that grace will make them light. And as for the joys and delights of being a child of God, if I lie this day, you shall charge me with it in days to come. If you will taste and see that the Lord is good, I am not afraid, but that you shall find he is not only good, but better than human lips can ever describe. I know not what arguments to use with you. I appeal to your own self-interests. Oh, my poor friend, would it not be better for you to be reconciled to the God of heaven than to be his enemy? What are you getting by opposing God? Are you the happier for being his enemy? Answer, pleasure seeker. Have you found delights in that cup? Answer me, self-righteous man. Have you found rest for the sole of your foot in all your works? Oh, you that aim to establish your own righteousness, I charge you, let conscience speak. Have you found it to be a happy path? Oh, my friend, why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your labor for what does not satisfy? Hearken diligently unto me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in fatness. I exhort you by everything that is sacred and solemn 
everything that is important and eternal. Flee for your lives. Look not behind you. Stay not in all the plains. Stay not until you have proved and found an interest in the blood of Jesus Christ, that blood which cleanses us from all sin. Are you still cold and indifferent? Will not the blind man permit me to lead him to the feast? Will not my maimed brother put his hand upon my shoulder and permit me to assist him to the banquet? Will not the poor man allow me to walk side by side with him? Must I use some stronger words? Must I use some other compulsion to compel you to come in? Sinners, this one thing I am resolved upon this morning. If you will not be saved, you will be without excuse. From the gray-headed down to the tender age of childhood, if you do not this day lay hold upon Christ, your blood shall be on your own head. If there be power in man to bring his fellow, as there is when man is helped by the Holy Spirit, that power shall be exercised this morning, God helping me. Come, I am not put off by your rebuffs. If my exhortation fails, I must come to something else. My brother, I entreat you. I entreat you. Stop and consider. Do you know what you're rejecting this morning? You're rejecting Christ, your only Savior. Other foundation no man can lay. There is none other name given among men whereby we must be saved. My brother, I cannot bear that you should do this, for I remember what you were forgetting. The day is coming when you will want a Savior. It is not long before weary months shall have ended and your strength begin to decline and your pulse shall fail you and your strength shall depart and you and the grim monster death must face each other. What will you do in the swellings of Jordan without a Savior? Deathbeds are stony things without Jesus Christ. It is an awful thing to die anyhow. He that hath the best hope and the most triumphant faith finds that death is not a thing to laugh at. It is a terrible thing to pass from the seen to the unseen, from the mortal to the immortal, from time to eternity. And you will find it hard to go through the iron gates of death without the sweet wings of angels to conduct you to the portals of the skies. It will be a hard thing to die without Christ. I cannot help thinking of you. I see you acting the suicide this morning. And I picture myself standing at your bedside and hearing your cries and knowing that you are dying without hope. I cannot bear that. I think I'm standing by your coffin now and looking into your clay-cold face and saying, this man despised Christ and neglected the great salvation. I think what bitter tears I shall weep then if I think that I have been unfaithful to you and how those eyes fast closed in death shall seem to chide me and say, minister, I attended the music hall, but you were not in earnest with me. You amused me, you preached to me, but you did not plead with me. You did not know what Paul meant when he said, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. I entreat you, 
let this message into your heart for yet another reason. I picture myself standing in the courtroom of God. As the Lord lives, the day of judgment is coming. You believe that. You're not an infidel. Your conscience would not permit you to doubt the scripture. Perhaps you may have pretended to do so, but you cannot. You feel there must be a day when God shall judge the world in righteousness. I see you standing in the midst of that throng. And the eye of God is fixed on you. It seems to you that he's not looking anywhere else, but only upon you. And he summons you before him. And he reads your sins. And he cries, depart ye cursed into everlasting fire in hell. My hearer, I cannot bear to think of you in that position. It seems as if every hair on my head must stand on its end to think of any hearer of mine being damned. Will you picture yourselves in that position? The word has gone forth. Depart, ye cursed. Do you see the pit as it opens to swallow you up? Do you listen to the shrieks and the yells of those who have preceded you to that eternal lake of torment? Instead of picturing the scene, I turn to you with the words of the inspired prophet Isaiah, and I say, who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Oh, my brother, I cannot let you put away religion like this. No, I think of what is to come after death. I would be destitute of all humanity if I should see a person about to poison himself and not dash away the cup. Or if I saw another about to plunge from London Bridge, if I did, didn't assist him in preventing him from doing so. And I should be worse than a fiend if I did not now, with all love and kindness and earnestness, beseech you to lay hold on eternal life, to labor not for the meat that perishes, but the meat that endures unto everlasting life. Some hyper-Calvinist would tell me I'm wrong in doing so. I cannot help it. I must do it. As I must stand before my judge at last, I feel that I shall not make full proof of my ministry unless I entreat with many tears that you shall be saved, that you would look unto Jesus Christ and receive his glorious salvation. But does not this avail? Are all our entreaties lost upon you? Do you turn a deaf ear? Then again, I change my note. Sinner, I have pleaded with you as a man pleads with his friend. And, and, and were it for my own life, I could not speak more earnestly this morning than I do speak concerning yours. I did feel earnest about my own soul, but not a whit more than I do about the souls of my congregation this morning. And therefore, if you put away these entreaties, I have something else. I must threaten you. You shall not always have such warnings as these. A day is coming when hushed shall be the voice of every gospel minister, at least for you. For your ears shall be cold in death. It shall not be any more threatening. It shall be the fulfillment of the threatening. There shall be no promise, no proclamations of pardon and of mercy, 
No peace speaking blood, but you shall be in the land where the Sabbath is all swallowed up in everlasting nights of misery and where the preachings of the gospel are forbidden because they would be unavailing. I charge you then, listen to this voice that now addresses your conscience. For if not, God shall speak to you in his wrath and say unto you in his hot displeasure what wisdom says in Proverbs 1, I called and ye refused. I stretched out my hand and no man regarded. Therefore, I will mock at your calamity and I will laugh when your fear cometh. Sinner, I threaten you again. Remember, it is but a short time you may have to hear these warnings. You imagine that your life will be long, but do you know how short it is? Have you ever tried to think how frail you are? Did you ever see a body when it has been cut in pieces by the anatomist? Did you ever see such a marvelous thing as the human frame? Strange, a harp of a thousand strings should keep in tune so long. Let but one of those cords be twisted. Let but a mouthful of food go in the wrong direction and you may die. The slightest chance as we have it may send you to swift to death when God wills it. Strong men have been killed by the smallest and slightest accident and so may you. In the chapel, in the house of God, men have dropped down dead. How often do we hear of men falling in our streets, rolling out of time into eternity by some sudden stroke? And are you sure that that heart of yours is quite sound? Is the blood circulating with all accuracy? Are you quite sure of that? And if it be so, how long shall it be? Oh, perhaps there are some of you here that shall never see Christmas Day. It may be the mandate has gone forth already. Set your house in order for you shall die and not live. Out of this vast congregation, I might with accuracy tell how many will be dead in a year. But certain it is that the whole of us shall never meet together again in any one assembly. Some out of this vast crowd, perhaps some two or three, shall depart before the new year is ushered in. I remind you then, my brother, that either the gate of salvation may be shut or else you may be out of the place where the gate of mercy stands. Come then, let the threatening have power with you. I do not threaten because I would alarm you without cause, but in hopes that a brother's threatening may drive you to the place where God has prepared the feast of the gospel. And now must I turn hopelessly away? Have I exhausted all that I can say? No, I will come to you again. Tell me what it is, my brother, that keeps you from Christ. I hear one say, oh, sir, it is because I feel myself too guilty. But that cannot be, my friend. That cannot be. But, sir, I am the chief of sinners. Friend, you are not. The chief of sinners died and went to heaven many years ago. His name was Saul of Tarsus, afterwards called Paul the Apostle. He was the chief of sinners. I know he spoke the truth. No, but you say still, I am too vile. You cannot be viler than the chief of sinners. You must at least be second worst. <laughs> Even supposing you're the worst now alive, you are second worst for he was the chief. But suppose you are the worst. 
Is not that the very reason why you should come to Christ? The worse a man is, the more reason he should go to the hospital or the physician. The more poor you are, the more reason you should accept the charity of another. Now, Christ does not lack any merits of yours. He gives freely. The worse you are, the more welcome you are. But let me ask you a question. Do you think you'll ever get better by stepping away from Christ? If so, you know very little as of yet the way of salvation. No, sir, the longer you stay, the worse you will grow. Your hope will grow weaker. Your despair will become stronger. The nail with which Satan has fastened you down will be more firmly clenched and you will be less hopeful than ever. Come, I beseech you, recollect that there is nothing to be gained by delay. But delay, but by delay, everything may be lost. But, cries another, I feel I cannot believe. No, my friend, and you never will believe if you look first that you're believing. Remember, I am not come to invite you to faith, but I am come to invite you to Christ. And you say, what's the difference? Why, just this. If you first of all say, I want to believe a thing, you never do it. But your first inquiry must be, what is this thing that I am to believe? Then faith will come as the consequence of that search. Our first business is not to do with faith, but with Christ. Come, I beseech you on Calvary's cross and see the cross. Behold, the Son of God, he who made the heavens and the earth, dying for your sins. Look to him. Is that not there in him power to save? Look at his face, so full of pity. Is there not love in his heart to prove him willing to save? Do not believe first and then go to Christ, or else your faith will be a worthless thing. Go to Christ without any faith and cast yourself upon him, sink or swim. But I hear another cry. Oh, sir, you do not know how often I have been invited, how long I have rejected the Lord. I do not know, and I do not want to know. All I know is that my master has sent me to compel you to come in. So come along with you now. You may have rejected a thousand invitations. Don't make this the thousand and first. You have been up to the house of God and you have only been gospel hardened. But now do I not see a tear in your eye? Come, my brother, don't be hardened by this morning sermon. Oh, spirit of the living God, come and melt this heart for it has never been melted and compel him to come in. I cannot let you go on such idle excuses as that. If you have lived so many years slighting Christ, there are so many reasons why now you should not slight him. But did I hear you whisper that this was not a convenient time? Then what must I say to you? When will that convenient time be? Shall it come when you are in hell? Will that time be convenient? Shall it come when you are on your dying bed and the death throttle is in your throat? Shall it come then? Or when the burning sweat is scalding your brow? And then again when the cold, clammy sweat is there? Shall those be convenient times? When pains are racking you and you're on the borders of the tomb? Verse 
No, sir, this morning is the convenient time. And may God make it so. Remember, I have no authority to ask you to come to Christ tomorrow. The master has given you no invitation to come to him next Tuesday. The invitation is today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation. For the spirit says today, come now and let us reason together. Why should you put it off? It may be the last warning you shall ever have. Put it off and you may never weep again in chapel. You may never have so earnest a discourse addressed to you. You may not be pleaded with as I would plead with you now. You may go away and God may say, he is given unto idols, let him alone. He shall throw the reins upon your neck and then mark, your course is sure, but it is sure damnation and swift destruction. And now again, is it all in vain? Will you not now come to Christ? Then what more can I do? I have but one more resort that shall be tried. I can be permitted to weep for you. I can be allowed to pray for you. You shall scorn the address if you like. You shall laugh at the preacher. You should call him a, a fanatic if you will. He will not chide you. He will bring no accusation against you to the great judge. Your offense, so far as he is concerned, is forgiven before it's committed. But you will remember that the message that you are rejecting this morning is a message from one who loves you. And it's given to you also by the lips of those who love you. You will recollect that you may play your soul away with the devil and that you may listlessly think it's a matter of no importance. But there lives at least one who is earnest about your soul and one who before he came here wrestled with his God for strength to preach to you. And who, when he is gone from this place, will not forget his hearers of this morning. I say again, when words fail us, we can give tears. For words and tears are the arms with which gospel ministers compel men to come in. You do not know, and I suppose could not believe, how anxious a man of God, who's, whom God has called into the ministry, feels about his congregation. And especially about some of them. I heard but the other day of a young man who attended here a long time and his father's hope was that he would be brought to Christ. He became acquainted, however, with an infidel and now he neglects his business and lives in a daily course of sin. I saw his father's poor, pale face. I didn't ask him to tell me the story himself for I felt it was raking up a trouble and opening up a sore. I fear sometimes that that good man's gray hairs may be brought with sorrow to the grave. Young men, you do not pray for yourselves, but your mothers wrestle for you. You will not think of your own souls, but your father's anxiety is exercised for you. I have been at prayer meetings when I have heard children of God pray there, and they couldn't have prayed with more earnestness and more intensity of anguish if each of them had been seeking their own soul's salvation. And is it not strange that we should be ready to move heaven and earth for your salvation and that still you should have no thought for yourselves, no regard to eternal things. Now I turn for one moment to some here. There are some of you here, members of Christian churches who make a profession of religion, 
but unless I be mistaken in you and I shall be happy if I am, your profession is a lie. You do not live up to it. You dishonor it. You can live in the perpetual practice of absenting yourselves from God's house, if not sins worse than that. Now I ask such of you who do not adorn the doctrine of God your Savior, do you imagine that you can call me your pastor and yet that my soul cannot tremble over you and in secret weep for you? Again, I say, it may be but little concern to you how you defile the garments of your Christianity, but it is a great concern uh, to God's hidden ones who sigh and cry and groan for the iniquities of the professors of Zion. Now, does anything else remain to the minister besides weeping and prayer? Yes, there is one thing else. God has given to his servants not the power of regeneration, but he's given them something akin to it. It's impossible for any man to regenerate his neighbor. And yet, how are men born to God? Does not the apostle say of Onesimus that he was begotten by him in his bonds? Now the minister has a power given him of God to be considered both the father and the mother of those born to God. For the apostle said he travailed in birth for the souls till Christ was formed in them. What can we do then? We can appeal now to the spirit. I know I have preached the gospel, that I have preached it earnestly. I challenge my master to honor his own promise. He has said, it shall not return unto me void, and it shall not. It is in his hands, not mine. I cannot compel you, but you, O Spirit of God, who has the key of the heart, you can compel. Did you ever notice in that chapter of Revelation where it says, behold, I stand at the door and knock? A few verses before, the same person is described as he who has the key of David. So that if knocking will not avail, he has the key and will come in. Now, if the knocking of an earnest minister prevail not with you this morning, there remains still that secret opening of the heart by the Spirit so that you shall be compelled. I thought it my duty to labor with you as though I must do it. Now I throw it into my master's hands. It cannot be his will that we should travail in birth and yet not bring forth spiritual children. It is with him. He is master of the heart and the day shall declare it that some of you constrained by sovereign grace have become the willing captives of the all-conquering Jesus and have bowed your hearts to him through the sermon of this morning. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for, for your grace to have worked so mightily in men as to give them the ability to, to issue such pleadings. May, Father, they be the pleadings of our own heart to the generation that we have been sent to. May we be as earnest, as intense. May we be willing to tell and command and exhort and entreat and threaten and weep and pray and then finally to entrust it all to you, which we do. We pray that you would give us grace to do our part and that you would give us grace to entrust you to do yours. 
and that by the glorious gospel of Christ crucified in the place of sinners, that you would bring your own into your fold, that you would use the word of this morning, of this text, to open the eyes of the blind, to quicken the, the dead heart that lies dormant and stony under the preaching of so glorious a gospel. Father, may there not be anyone in grace life who comes to that day and hears, I never knew you. Depart, ye cursed. May it be, come and be blessed by the Father. Welcome, enter into the joy of your master. Well done, good and faithful servant. Whatever it is that stands in the way of faith this morning, Remove it by your sovereign omnipotence. Overcome it. Smash it to bits by the power of your spirit and grant new life. And may we be faithful to this gospel, to live in a way that adorns it well, to speak it to those to whom we are sent. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.